And the catechism began, the, the great catechisms, Westminster Catechism and others, began with this, what is the chief end of man? This was taught to the smallest children, and eventually they memorized all the hundreds of questions and answers in the catechism, and that's what framed their theology. But question number one was, what is the chief end of man? And the answer was to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That was the very beginning of theological training and has been throughout the history of much of the church in the world. Everything goes back to the glory of God. In fact, in the New Testament, there are many doxologies. None is a more noble and wonderful doxology than that of Romans chapter 11, where it says in verse 36, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Everything is to go back to the glory of God. That is the foundation of all true religion. God made everything for His glory. In fact, in Psalm 19 it says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and they are there to put His glory on display. In Isaiah 43 and verse 20, the prophet said that, God said, from the beast of the field, I will get glory. Whether you're talking about stars and planets, sun and moon, the solar system, or whether you're talking about the animal creation that God has placed on this earth, they are all intended for His glory. Everything is for His glory. In fact, the creation, for the most part, doesn't argue Stars don't rebel. There's never been uh, the rebellion of the stars. There's never been the rebellion of the planets. There's never been the rebellion of the cows or the rebellion of the horses or the mice or the spiders or the snakes. Uh, they don't rebel. They just give God glory every day, day after day, the psalmist said, night after night, they give God glory. They have no capacity to do other than that. God gave them no choice. They cannot rebel. They are not self-conscious. Inanimate and animate objects in those categories are not self-conscious. They have no consciousness of truth or reality. If they are at all alive, they operate by inexorable laws that are absolutely fixed and move only in any variation by virtue of instinct. God only made really two creatures with a will and an ability to rebel, angels and men, and both exercise that option. And that is the tragedy that there are angels who refuse to give God glory and have been thrown out of heaven, and we know them as demons, and men refuse to give God glory, and they too fell. And now, in a sense, sadly, God never provided a saving plan for angels. Angels who fell are damned forever. There's no hope of salvation. There's no grace for angels. There's no mercy for angels. In fact, hell was prepared for the devil and his angels. God saves no angels, restores no angels, forgives no angels for their rebellion and their iniquity. 
But when it comes to the human race, when man fell, God immediately put in place a plan by which fallen man who refused to give God glory could come back to the place where he gives God glory, and that's the whole redemptive purpose. So God is calling sinners to give him glory. That is the plan. That's the heart of it. The Apostle Paul understood this when he expressed the doxology in 1 Timothy 1.17. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. That's the heart of all true religion, is to glorify God. And we are called to that. In Psalm 16, we get in touch with that same principle, perhaps from a little different perspective, a Psalm of David, in which he gives us the focus of his life. In Psalm 16, we read this in verse 8. I have set the Lord continually before me. I have set the Lord continually before me. What does he mean by that? That everything in his life is viewed in the light of God. In other words, it's like looking through rose-colored glasses. He's looking at everything through God's eyes. I have set the Lord always before me so that I see everything through Him. It's another way of saying I do what glorifies Him. He is always in my conscious thought. I always ask the question, will it honor God? Will it please God? Will this be what brings him glory? Will this be what brings him reverence and worship and awe? Will this be what pleases him? Will this be what satisfies him? It's always the question. Paul, in writing to Titus, calls this same concept adorning the doctrine of God. Doing whatever we do to adorn the truth about God to satisfy Him, to please Him. In Romans 12, Paul says that our act of spiritual service is to do what is well-pleasing to God, to give Him glory. That's always the issue. That's the bottom-line issue. And He deserves it because He is God. Turn with me to Romans chapter 1, and let's look a little more closely at some scriptures. And I'm going to introduce this concept to you this morning, and then we'll talk about specific ways we do that in the next two sessions. But in Romans chapter 1, I want you to get in touch with a very important issue here. Verse 18 of Romans 1 says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. God is a God of mercy, of course, and grace, but God is also a God of justice and wrath a God of punishment, and God releases His wrath against ungodliness. Down in verse 21, He defines that ungodliness in a most interesting way. He says this, Even though they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God. Now there is the single indictment of the fallen human race, the iniquity which damns them, the sin which brings about the wrath of God, is a failure to glorify God. Again, that is always the issue. To glorify Him is to be blessed, not to glorify Him is to be cursed. They did not glorify Him as God. 
That is the indictment. Verse 23 says, They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. What's that talking about? That, that's talking about false religions substituting for the true. All different kinds of idols and even the worship of man himself, which is our contemporary religion, humanism, materialism. But the indictment is they did not glorify him as God. This is the issue upon which everything in redemptive history turns. Now, with that kind of general background in mind, I want to give you the history, a very brief history of the glory of God. I want you to follow it very closely because it is crucial. Back in Genesis chapter 3, God created man and woman, put them in the garden. And in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 8, this is what we read. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. This is a tragic moment in human history. Adam and Eve had been fellowshipping with God. They had been walking and talking with God. They were in perfect fellowship with Him. He was there. In what way was God present in the garden? He revealed Himself as light. The Hebrews called it the Shekinah. Have you heard that word? It's a word that means presence, the very word here. But God had produced a light, a shining, brilliant translucent light, which was the manifestation of himself. God doesn't have a body because God is a spirit. And as Jesus said, a spirit has not flesh and bones, as you see me have when he spoke to his disciples. So a spirit is an immaterial being. God is a spirit. But when he materialized, when he revealed himself, he materialized as light, blazing, shining light called the Shekinah glory. And in that form, God moved in the garden and talked with Adam and Eve and fellowship with them. And then they sinned. And upon the occasion of that sin, God returned to find them in verse 8. And as God moved toward them, they started to hide behind the trees. And they were hiding from the Shekinah. Now here is the beginning of the redemptive plan. Man and woman had walked and talked with the glory of God, the glory of God revealed in this blazing, glorious light. And then they sinned, and the fellowship was broken. But here comes God, bringing back His glory, seeking man again. It's a marvelous thing, because He could have chosen to deal with man the same way He dealt with fallen angels, and that was to damn them eternally to hell with no hope of salvation. And they too are eternal beings who will live forever in torment. Angels are. Fallen angels. But God was gracious to man. And here we find in chapter 3, verse 8, right after the fall, the presence of God. And He's back in the garden. And He hasn't cut them off from His presence. He is calling them to come and face His glory and be restored. God brought His glory back in the garden. And He was saying to Adam and Eve, 
come and view my glory. There is grace for you. There is mercy for you. And you know what happened? They were so shamed and so wicked and so sinful that they could not have a relationship with that glory. It was still there. God was there. But man could no longer have a relationship with God because he had violated that. And so what did God do? God had to kick Adam and Eve out of the garden. And he put an angel there with a flaming sword. Because if they had stayed in that garden, they would have eaten of the tree that gives everlasting life. And they would have lived forever in that wretched, sinful condition. God had to cut them off from that. God had to separate them from that. And God had to put them out of His presence for a time. And so an angel was there to keep them from entering the garden with a flaming sword, and they were thrown out of the garden. You say, well, at that point, did God give up on man? No, He didn't. Look at Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33. And I'm just giving you a brief look at this. In Exodus chapter 33... Starting in verse 13, God comes to Moses, and Moses is up in the mountain and says, I want you to lead my people out of Egypt. And God says, uh, they've been captive long enough. You remember they were 400 years in Egyptian captivity. I want you to lead them out. Verse 12, Moses said to the Lord, see, thou dost say to me, bring up this people. You're telling me to lead this people out of Egypt, but you... Thou thyself hast not let me know whom thou wilt send with me. Moses says, you think I can do this alone? I can't. Who are you going to send, God? Who are you going to send? Now, therefore, verse 13, I pray thee, if I have found favor in thy sight, let me know thy ways, that I may know thee, so that I might find favor in thy sight. Consider, too, that this nation is thy people. God, I need to know you better. God says, I'm going to go with you. Moses says, I, I need to know you better. I need to be sure that you are really identified with this people. Verse 14, and he said, my presence shall go with you. The Shekinah is back. The glory of God is back. And God says, my glory will go with you. And Moses was not convinced yet. Verse 18, Moses says to God, I pray thee, show me thy glory. I want to see it. I want to see it. I, I want to be really sure. And God said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. That is, I will reveal all that I am, which is bound up in my name. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. You say, what in the world is that all about? What that is doing is defining God's glory. I'll show you my glory. And what is my glory? It is my goodness. It is my name. It is my grace. It is my compassion revealed in blazing light. It is all that I am revealed in light. And I will show you my glory which is the composite of all God's attributes translated into light. 
But God says in verse 20, you can't see my face. What does he mean by that? You can't see the full glory, for no man can see me and live. If you saw my full glory, it would incinerate you. You'd go up in smoke instantaneously. Too much power, too much light. It would be like standing ten feet from the surface of the sun. So the Lord said, there's a place by me. In verse 21, you'll stand there on the rock, and it'll come about while my glory is passing by. I will put you in the, in the crack, uh, the cleft of the rock, cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you'll see my backside, but my face shall not be seen. Obviously, God doesn't literally have a hand, but he is saying, what I'm going to do is cover you. You get in the crack of that rock, and I'm going to have my glory move by. You can't see the full glory. You can't see the front of it, but I'll let you see a little of the back. And I'll just pull my hand away so you get a glimpse and then I'll cover it or you, or you would be consumed. And God reveals his glory. He revealed his glory in the garden and men walked away from it and had to be expelled from the garden. Now the glory of God comes back and God is again saying to sinners, I am the glorious God and I want to have a relationship with you. Will you honor me? Will you glorify me? Will you recognize me for who I am? And glorifying God is simply recognizing him for who he is and acting in response to that. And so, I don't know if you know the rest of the story, but Moses looks out from the rock. You have to get to 2 Corinthians 3 to get the full story. He looks out from the rock and the glory comes by and he sees the back part and it gets all over his face. And all of a sudden, he, comes, he becomes uh, just a glowing face. And he goes down the mountain now, and he's just shining like the sun. Because he's got the glory of God all over his face. Chapter 34 tells us a little more about the revealing of the glory of God. But... Moses comes down the mountain. Let's just think about 2 Corinthians for a moment. Moses comes down the mountain, and 2 Corinthians 3 describes the whole thing. And he looks at the people, and his face is just shining. And God, in his mercy, has brought the glory of God not only to Moses, but now to all of Israel. To all of Israel. And again, he is saying, will you acknowledge my glory? Will you see me for who I am? The glory could have gone away and stayed permanently in the garden. But here it is, and it comes back. And God is saying to Moses, and God is saying to the people of Israel, Will you see my glory? Will you give me glory? Will you honor me as God? And you know the sad truth? What happened to that nation of Israel? They all died in the wilderness because they wouldn't honor him. Adam and Eve had to be thrown out of the garden. The children of Israel had to die in the wilderness. You say, did God give up? No. No. Look at Exodus chapter 40. And in Exodus chapter 40, God said that while you're wandering around, I want to bring you uh, my glory. And I want to put it inside a special tent called the tabernacle. So in chapter 40, you have the tabernacle being erected. And you remember there were 12 tribes in Israel? Three, three, and three were set around the four sides of the tabernacle so that they all, when they camped, all focused on the tabernacle. Everybody looked at the tabernacle. It was the centerpiece. And uh, in the center of the tabernacle was the holy 
place, and inside the holy place was the holy of holies, which was to be the dwelling place of God. And so when the thing was finally erected, go down to verse 34. As soon as the tabernacle was finished, verse 33 says Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. That The cloud all of a sudden comes down. This is the same cloud that God sent to lead them by day, which was a pillar of fire by night, and that was nothing more than Shekinah glory. So the glory was in the on the mountain. Moses saw it. It was on Moses' face in front of the people. It was in the sky as a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. And God just kept his glory in front of those people. He continually manifested himself in that manner and called people to recognize his glory and respond appropriately. And now what happens is the tent is complete. Verse 34, so the cloud covered the tent of meeting. The glory cloud just comes right down like a fog and sets on top of the tabernacle. And then it says in verse 35, the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, they moved. When the cloud was not taken up, they didn't move. That's how God directed them with His glory. When His glory went up, they followed it. When His glory stayed, they stayed. And God had put His glory back in front of them. Just like Adam and Eve, just like Moses, He had done with these people. Sadly, they murmured, complained. As you well know, built a golden calf, turned their hearts against God. Even Moses, who had seen the glory of God, disobeyed God and struck the rock when God told him to speak to the rock, and he had to die and never enter the promised land. It's a little bit tragic when you think about how many times God sends his glory back and how people continually refuse to honor him. But God is so patient. Look at 1 Kings chapter 8. They got in the promised land. They entered into the promised land, and God was not yet through with them. He might well have been, but he wasn't. And in 1 Kings, they come into the promised land and they build a temple. This is not a temporary building. This isn't a tent you roll up and move along. This is a permanent building, a massive structure built by Solomon. The great Solomonic temple. And when the temple was completed, 1 Kings 8 down to verse 10. Now they're in the promised land. They're in Jerusalem. They're on the mount. The temple is built. And it came about when the priests came from the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord. Here comes the glory again, and it comes down. Verse 11 says, So that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. And here's God's glory back. He showed them His glory in the garden. He showed them His glory in the wilderness. He shows them His glory in the promised land. And what will they do with it? When they saw his glory in the garden, they were in shame and sin and had to be expelled. When Moses saw the glory of God, he himself was disobedient. The people of Israel were disobedient. What's going to happen now? The glory has come. It's abiding in the very temple which had been built in Jerusalem. What will be their response? The answer comes in Ezekiel, as Ezekiel gives us one of the most tragic portions of Scripture, one of the most tragic visions. Ezekiel chapter 8. Listen to what Ezekiel says. Verse 5, chapter 8. The Lord speaks to Ezekiel. Verse 4, you might want to read. The glory of the Lord of Israel was there. 
And he says, I saw it. Here's the glory again. I saw the glory. And then God said to me, Son of man, raise your eyes toward the north. So I raised my eyes toward the north. And behold, to the north of the altar gate was this idol of jealousy at the entrance. This is unbelievable. Here's the temple. Ezekiel is looking at the temple. God says, look at the north gate of the temple. He looks at the north gate of the temple and he sees an idol there. They have brought an idol into the temple where the glory of God dwells. Verse 6, he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they're doing? The great abominations which the house of Israel are committing here, that I should be far from my sanctuary, but yet you will see still greater abominations. Here again, the glory is there, the magnificent temple, the glory cloud is there, and God is saying, recognize me, give me glory, give me honor, fall before me, worship me. All of his attributes manifest in glory. They've all been revealed through through His revelation, His Word. They know the character of God and they can see that manifestation of that character in light. And yet they refuse to be obedient. And what does Ezekiel see? It's just unbelievable. Verse 10. He enters into the temple and he sees every form of creeping thing and beast and detestable thing with all the idols of the house of Israel carved on the wall all around. In this vision, the whole temple has been turned into an idol palace. And every imaginable idol is inside the temple of God. Abomination to God. And then in verse 11, you have some men who are functioning as priests who had no divine right to function as priests. And then in verse 14, you see women weeping for Tammuz. Tammuz is the mother of Baal. Baal died, Tammuz wept, and the false... uh, religion of Baal worship said Tammuz was raised from the dead. They're worshiping Baal. He looked again, verse 16, and they had their backs to the temple and their faces toward the east and they were worshiping the sun. Unbelievable. In the temple of God. The glory was there in the garden. Men turned away. The glory of the face of Moses and leading Israel and in the tabernacle they turned away. Here in the temple... They filled the temple with their idols. And then the rest of this section, and I won't read it, is just incredible. The glory then moves. Ezekiel watches. The glory goes over the gate, and it goes up in the sky, then it goes out over the city, then it goes out into the wilderness, and it disappears. And that's what the word Ichabod means, the glory has departed. And God said, you will not give me glory, and left. And he could just as well at that point have said, that's it, I've had it, that is the end. But he didn't. The glory came back. Only this time it didn't come back in a tent, and it didn't come back in a building, and it didn't come back on a face, and it didn't come back in a garden. Look at John 1.14. John 1.14. And the Word... Who's that? Jesus Christ. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld His what? His glory. This time the glory came back in a body. The glory came back in the form of Jesus Christ. 
And you remember that that is indeed the case because on the Mount of Transfiguration, read it in Luke chapter 9, when the disciples were taken up to the mount with Jesus, it says he was transfigured before them. What it meant was he just pulled back the veil of his flesh. And what did they see? Blazing light. The glory of God in a body. You say, wow. Whoa, certainly this time the world will properly respond. Oh, what did they do to him? Murdered him. They killed the glory of God. Drove nails through his hands, through his feet. Rammed a crown of thorns on his head. Shoved a spear into his side. Spit on him, cursed him, mocked him. They rejected the glory in the garden. They rejected it on the face of Moses. They rejected it in the tabernacle. They rejected it in the temple. And they even rejected it in Jesus Christ. They saw the glory of God shining in the face of Jesus Christ, Paul says in 2 Corinthians. They saw the glory of God shining in the face of Jesus Christ, and they rejected it again. Again. You say, well, will the glory come back again? Yeah. It'll come back again. Only next time, won't be any rejection. Look at Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24 describes the second coming of Christ. things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Listen. When the glory comes back, we're all going to be with Him in that glory. When He returns, we're all coming back with Him. That's one reason why I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. How can we come in glory if we're not there yet? So I believe that we'll come in that great cloud of glory with Him. Why? Because during this present age, and certainly even more wonderfully then, we are the repository of God's glory in this world. In a garden, the glory was revealed. On the face of a man, in the sky, in a tent, in a building, in a person, Jesus Christ. But now, I believe the glory of God is in us. It's in us. This is an incredible, remarkable, astonishing thing to think about. The only glory that the world sees is the glory of Christ in us. Listen to Colossians 1.27. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's it. Where is the glory now? It's in you. It's in me. Just like it was in the garden, just like it was on the face of Moses, just like it was in the tent and, on the, and in the building, just the same. It's in us. 
Someday that full glory will be manifest in the second coming. That's what Paul in Romans 8 calls the glorious manifestation of the sons of God. But that's not yet apparent to the world. They see us walking down the street and they can't tell we're any different. They don't know the glories in us. But someday it'll burst out. But in this world now, we are the only hope of glory. And as we live to the glory of God, people see that glory shining through. Christ in you, the only hope for people to see the glory of God. What a tremendously high calling. What an unbelievable responsibility. To, to share another passage on that same theme, Ephesians 3, for example, where it says in verse 21, To Him be the glory, listen to this, in the church. It's in us that the glory dwells. It's from us that the glory shines. And that's how we're to live. We are to live to the glory of God. We are the tabernacle of the glory of God. We are the temple of the glory of God. In fact, listen to 2 Corinthians 4, 6. God is the one, listen to this, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. What an unbelievable statement. God has chosen to shine in our hearts to reveal His glory through us. That can only happen as we live to His glory, as we adorn His character. That's why we're here. You're a tabernacle for the glory of God. You're a temple for the glory of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit. Your face should shine like Moses. You should radiate the glory of God, radiate the character of God, radiate the attributes of God. People ought to look at you and see the love of God. They ought to look at you and see the mercy of God, the grace of God, the compassion of God, the wisdom of God, the understanding of God, the purity of God. You should be a shining vehicle for the glory of God. And that's what spiritual growth is, 2 Corinthians 3.18. You go from one level of glory to the next level of glory as the Spirit of God works in your life. You get shining brighter and brighter and brighter and brighter. And you know what spiritual maturity is? It's just the progress of that brightness. You have lights in your home with a switch that doesn't just turn them on and off, but is a dimmer switch. That's what God wants to do in your life. Just keep turning that deal higher and higher and higher. That's spiritual development. That's spiritual growth. Until you just shine brighter and brighter and brighter and the glory of God is manifest through you as God reveals His character through you because you live to His glory. That is true religion. That is real spirituality. That is spiritual growth. Now that leaves a question. How does that happen? How, how can I live that way? And I'm going to answer that question Wednesday and Friday. Okay? Let's pray.
Father, thank you for a wonderful beginning this morning. Thank you for time in your precious word. Oh, Lord, how I pray for these young people. I pray for their spiritual growth and development this year. I pray that they would shine ever brighter with your glory. May they just radiate who you are. May you be honored in all our lives. For Jesus' sake, amen. God bless you.